Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Tom Hyam. How science is revealing a new story of our human origins in his new book, The World Before Us. Tom Hyam is Professor of Archaeological Science at the University of Oxford and Director of the Oxford Radiocarbon Accelerator Unit. He has worked on the remains of Richard III, the Elephant Man and Egyptian pharaohs, and since 2010 has been at the forefront of research on a new species of human, the Denisovans. He has presented on BBC Radio 4 and has appeared on various television documentaries, including presenting the BBC's Inside Out and with David Attenborough on Attenborough and the Giant Egg. And today we're going to talk about Tom's first book, The World Before Us, How Science is Revealing a New Story of Our Human Origins. Tom, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. So the book looks back roughly around the period of 50,000 years ago to a time when there was multiple species of humans occupying the world, the most famous of which are the Neanderthals, which I'm not going to touch on too much today because I spent nearly an hour talking to Rebecca Rag Sykes not too long ago about her wonderful book Kindred. And I want to concentrate mainly on the on the Denisovans today, apart from where they cross over with the Neanderthals, of course. Mm. And so the book begins with you and your team making this amazing discovery of a piece of bone that will eventually be called Denny, no relation. What was it? Yes. So um, as I say, as I say in the book, um, this is a piece of research that came about through my involvement with the team at Denisova Cave. And Denisova Cave is a, is a very important archaeological site that is located in the Altai Mountains in basically the middle of Eurasia. If you, if you divide Eurasia by 50%, Denisova is about in the middle. It's in a place called the Altai, the Altai Mountains. So it's a sort of subalpine area that roughly intersects at the borders of Kazakhstan, Mongolia, China, and Siberia. So it's right in the smack in the middle of the continent. And the, the cave was initially explored and discovered in the early 1980s, and subsequently has been excavated for almost year in, year out, by a team from the Russian Academy of Sciences at the city of Novosibirsk. And in 2010, it was put on the world map of paleoanthropology, because, of course, it's here that 
the new species called the Denisovans was first discovered using ancient DNA methods on a tiny small piece of um, Denisovan, a finger bone that was analyzed at the Max Planck in Leipzig. So anyway, my wife and I, my wife Katarina Duca and I worked very closely together and we were at the site. Uh, our responsibility at that stage was the chronology and dating of these uh, various human remains and the archaeological sequence there, which goes back around 300,000 years ago at the very base of the site. And we were thinking at the time that there was amazing genetic uh, information that, that we could get from this material, from this uh, site. But the problem was that there were tiny, tiny human bones and that the bone itself was very fragmented from the site generally. So around 95% of all the bones from the site are so fragmented that we can't tell what they are using archaeozoological techniques. We don't know what species of bone they are. They could be mammoth, they could be hyena, they could be dog, they could be anything. And so we thought that actually what we could do was, would be to use a new scientific method at the time called ZOOMS, which stands for Zoo Archaeology by Mass Spectrometry. And it's a a way of looking at the fingerprint of the proteins in bones, which actually can allow you to diagnose either the species or the genus of that material. And you can do this very, very quickly. Once you've taken a sample of the bone, you can scan hundreds of bones a week. And so we thought this would be a cool way of looking for human material from amongst the detritus of all of these other broken up and fragmented animal bones. Anyway, so we pitched this idea and um, we got the green light from our Russian colleagues. And so with, um, with my student, Samantha Brown, we began the laborious task of taking samples from hundreds and hundreds of these little tiny bony fragments in the hope that we might be able to find a human bone fragment. And at that time, nobody had ever done this before. It was, um, it was a bit of a shot in the dark. And I must say, I did have very um, few hopes that it would work, but it was worth a shot because if we did find a bone, the preservation of the biomolecules in those bones was very, very high. Anyway, after more than a thousand samples with nothing, all um, just animal bones, um, number 1,227 turned out to be a hominidae and it was the best discovery at the time we were so pleased to find it because we really didn't think that this technique was going to furnish us with anything and if we did we were going to get very lucky now that bone fragment mitochondrial dna was extracted in leipzig and the mitochondrial dna told us that this was of the neanderthal lineage so we were really excited because we found this neanderthal bone we later discovered using various other techniques that the bone dated to probably around 90 to 110,000 years ago. It measured about 2.5 centimeters in length, so tiny, tiny bone, and it probably went through a hyena. But it was only when the nuclear DNA was extracted about a year later by a student called Viviana Slon and her colleagues, again in the Max Planck in Leipzig, that it was revealed that it wasn't simply the case that it was a Neanderthal. It actually was a hybrid human. It was a 50% first-generation hybrid between a Neanderthal mother and a Denisovan father. And you can imagine this kind of was a shocking and, and unbelievable and thrilling and surprising all rolled into one. But it's given us this insight into the fact that these different human groups, when they met, they interbred with one another. And we're seeing this again and again and again as more genomes are extracted. But this was really um, one of the highlights of my research career, just discovering this tiny human bone. We've gone on to find more. And well, right at the end of the interview, we'll come back to the idea of hybridization mm. and, and what that might have meant eventually okay. for these species. But um, mm. the idea that they crossbred, like I, I know from doing a, you know, a commercial 23andMe mm. DNA test that I've apparently got a significant amount of Neanderthal DNA in me. But this is only a very recent find, isn't it? We've always thought that it was impossible for these species to crossbreed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, for many, many decades, it was thought that Neanderthals initially were on our ancestral line, that we had descended from them. 
And then later it was established using dating techniques and um, lots of excavation and, and other analyses that that was unlikely, that Neanderthals were, we had a common ancestor more than 500,000 years ago, and our uh, line had separated from Neanderthals. Neanderthals and others had expanded out of, out of Africa and into Eurasia and had become separated from us, only subsequently to, to meet again much, much later. And so they are separate from us, but of course our, our related close cousins. So for many, many decades after, there were bitter debates about whether or not we'd even met Neanderthals. Perhaps they disappeared before our anatomically modern human ancestors had even come out of Africa and had the chance to meet them. Archaeological evidence was um, bitterly debated and argued over. And it wasn't until the late uh, 2000s, that uh, DNA and genetics of ancient uh, samples was at a stage where it could feasibly be applied to these um, important questions. And it was um, not until the Neanderthal genome was sequenced that it was possible to say without any doubt whatsoever that we had interbred with Neanderthals. It was only when we got this complete DNA sequence, they were able to look at it by comparing it to modern human or living human DNA sequences that there was a small amount of Neanderthal DNA in us. And it averages pretty similar levels right across Eurasia. And even some DNA now has been located in, in modern day the, the Africans. In people outside of Africa, it's averages about 2 to 2.5%. Um, some people a little bit more, some people a little bit less. That's the average range. In Africa, it's much less than that. We're not quite sure whether it's derived from Neanderthals ever getting into Africa or from modern humans coming back into Africa with Neanderthal DNA. But it became, it was a huge um, surprise to many of us because the mitochondrial DNA that was previously analyzed hadn't shown any evidence for Neanderthals in modern human mitochondrial DNA at all. It was only when the full nuclear DNA was revealed that this um, stunning insight was made. So the Denisova cave, the, the Altai region, as mm. you said, it's the, the intersection of Siberia, Kazakhstan, China, and Mongolia, which doesn't sound like it's going to leap immediately to the, to the top of my holiday list. But the way you describe it in the book, it sounds beautiful. Yeah, it, it, it is, actually. And, you know, I was, I was as surprised as, um, as the next person. I'd, I'd actually um, chatted to a colleague of mine who'd been there many years previously, a guy called Paul Hazard, who was a He's a grizzled old, he's, he's retired now, he's in his 80s, but he is a grizzled old geologist who'd worked a lot in Omo Valley in Africa. And he, he told me about Denisova Cave and it's amazing. Oh, look at the beautiful eagles flying in the sky and, you know, it's snow in the winter and it's a beautiful mountainous country and the crystal clear water and blue, blue skies. It's a wonderful place, he said. And so he advised me to go. And fortunately, I was in Moscow at one time and I happened to be introduced to the um, chief of the um, archaeological um, group working in um, Novosibirsk at the um, Russian Academy of Sciences. And I was interested in working in Russia. He was interested in, um, in, in me coming to the site and looking at the chronology and uh, working on other sites. And so I was able to, um, to get involved, fortunately, um, about uh, 12 or so years ago. And um, so I've been working there ever since. And it is a wonderful place to get to if you can possibly make it. It's just bloody difficult to get to, though. That's the problem. You know, you fly to Novosibirsk and then you've got about a 12-hour drive. And it's um, in the latter stages of it, it's quite up and down and bumpy. There's a lot of four-wheel drive tracks and so on. But when you get there, it's, 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 it's really paradise. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. And so the, the cave, this is where the tiny, tiny bits of bone, bits of finger bone, a couple of teeth were found that we, you know, eventually extrapolated the Denisovans, a, a completely new species of humans. Mm. How could we do that from such scant evidence? Yeah. 
So um, Denisova Cave is a, is a cold place when you're inside. It's um, the average temperature doesn't get above a few degrees um, throughout the year. And so as my friend Tom Gilbert uh, often says, DNA is like ice cream. In the colder places, the ice cream, you know, it's, it sticks around. But in, in warmer climates, it uh, unfortunately drips away. And any, any parent of a young child knows the problems that then accrue. And so um, Denisova has given us, fortunately, this ability to find very intact biomolecules. Collagen um, from archaeological bones, as well as ancient DNA, um, survives very well in many cases, not in all cases, because there is some variation in um, different parts of the cave. So in the east chamber, which is the probably the most important part of the, of the site, where you do get a lot of these um, little fragments of bone, the preservation there is, is pretty good. In fact, the first evidence that we had for Denisovans came from this tiny little finger bone. So in this particular case, the bone of probably around a 13 and a half year old girl was excavated by a Russian, um, one of the Russian archaeological team. And he identified this tiny bone and he pointed it out to his colleagues, in particular, Michael Shunkov and Anatoly Derevyanka, who are the two main excavators of the site. And they immediately recognized it as being probably human. They couldn't be sure what type of human. They initially thought it was a homo sapiens, anatomically modern like us. And what, what they did was they separated it into two bits and they sent it to two different DNA labs to analyze. And uh, fortunately, the preservation of the DNA was so good in this bone. It had 70% endogenous DNA. And that is absolutely unheard of in archaeology. Most of the time, 70% DNA would be bacterial DNA. It's contaminating DNA. It's, it's, it's DNA that's not from the original bone. In this particular case, the bone was very well preserved. And I think what probably happened was that this little bone, it's right at the peripheral. It's, you know, it's one of the exterior parts of the bone. So the bone of the finger and the hand, there's not a lot of meat or flesh on this bone. And I think it probably desiccated and dried quite quickly, preserving the um, biomolecules in it. It didn't have the chance to undergo bacterial or microbial degradation and activity. And so it preserved beautifully. And this allowed the geneticists who worked on it in, in, in Leipzig to be able to extract a very high coverage genome, which allowed us then to explore the, the linkages, the links with modern populations and that DNA sequence from the Denisovans. You go into quite some detail in the book about techniques for, for dating ancient human remains and also, of course, various techniques of using DNA, looking for both nuclear DNA and mitochondrial. Mm. Of course, these finds obviously would not have been able to be done without the advances in DNA technology. Mm. I want to talk about one new technique in DNA mm. that could take us even further and might even enable us to find evidence of human occupation of a place without actually any trace of those humans themselves. Mm. And that's finding DNA in soil. How does that work? This is, I mean, this is this almost like the stuff of science fiction. In, fact, um, in fact, when... Um, first told me about this back in the early 2000s. I mean, I, I literally thought he was taking, take, well, he was joking, right? I mean, I, I thought this is ridiculous because I felt that archaeological sites can be quite mobile. Material moves up and down. You know, you get water coming down and, and moving things around sometimes. And um, so little biomolecules and tiny fragments of DNA, I thought, could be quite mobile. They could move around. So I didn't think it was going to be something that flew at all. But um, the technological advances that have happened in the last um, decade, decade and a half, have meant that, of course, um, it's now possible to actually extract DNA from soil. And the work that the really exciting work has taken place in, over the very recent period of time, only in the last uh, four or five years, has this become almost routinely possible. And it relies on the fact that 
DNA from human activity, urination, um, feces in the site, you know, just general day-to-day activities. And this DNA becomes chemically quite bound and stuck to silicates and fragments of mineral in the in the soil itself. And it's possible in cases where you don't have a lot of um, water flowing through a site, it's possible to extract the DNA and be quite sure that it actually comes from the location in which you're sampling. There are tests and checks and balances and ways of looking at this, but it's been possible to actually extract quite large amounts of DNA, um, which can be linked to ancient, demonstrably ancient human DNA, and thereby identify species on the basis of, of this new technology. And, and, and what's really jaw-dropping is that you almost don't need the bones now. You would be surprised to hear perhaps that even if we didn't know Denisovans existed based on bone remains, we'd still know that they were present based only on the soil sediment DNA now. That's how good it is to extract. And two weeks ago, a very important paper was published in the journal Science, which showed for the first time that nuclear DNA could be extracted from the soil, not just the mitochondria, but the very, very informative wide autosomal or nuclear DNA. And so this is really super exciting because it means that we can now use this technique as a way of looking at the ancient distribution of these different species of humans right across these vast spans of of space, finding archaeological sites, coring down into them and extracting the sediment DNA to figure out who was there. And sometimes even perhaps who was there together because we know that interbreeding was taking place periodically. So I think in the future, we're going to be able to do things like look through a sequence in an archaeological site and identify which types of humans were there and which types of humans were overlapping perhaps with one another at different times. Because at Denisova, we have a situation where we have Denisovans, Neanderthals, then Denisovans, then Neanderthals, then Denisovans, then Neanderthals, then modern humans, all occupying the site over the course of 300,000 years. We talked about how most people in Eurasia have got a, you know, a small percentage of Neanderthal DNA within them. Mm. And we're starting now to find that Denisovan DNA is also spread among some of the extant population. And so I want to talk about what their reach was. This is very, um, very current. And a lot of people are very interested in this because it looks as though Denisovans um, were actually not just a single population. And I talk about this in the book. And then again, this is based on a lot of um, recent genetic analyses of of living people and living populations and looking at their whole genomes and identifying the ancient or archaic parts of those genomes and then comparing those to the genomes we've got from Denisovans and Neanderthals for the most part, because we've got high coverage genomes of both of those. And what became um, apparent in uh, 2018 was that in the case of living people in um, different parts of Melanesia predominantly, but also in Japan and Eastern Asia, was that there were two different populations of Denisovans that had integrated their DNA into living people at some point over the last 40 to 50,000 years. And subsequently, more research into this area has shown that the picture is even more complicated. In fact, there could well be three different populations of Denisovans that separated from one another more than 450,000 years ago in, in the most ancient case. And also more recently, again, of research is moving so quickly, it's very hard sometimes to keep up. Fortunately, we have a paper that was published uh, two weeks ago that summarizes things 
um, quite well. And I go into this again in my book because I was lucky enough to be able to talk to some of the authors who worked on this before before they published this paper. It looks as though there is evidence for integration of Denisovans into some living populations in the areas of the Philippines, Papua New Guinea, and Melanesia that could have been taking place as recently as 20 to 24,000 years ago. So we have this very interesting emerging case where great deal more complexity. We know that Denisovans were genetically more diverse than Neanderthals. We know that there were at least two, perhaps even three different populations that have become isolated from one another in islands east of Wallace's line, as we call it, in Melanesia, in the Philippines, in Eastern Asia. And we're starting to find more and more about what these um, genetic integrations mean for living populations in these areas today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Yeah, listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tom Hyam, and we're talking about his book, The World Before Us, How Science is Revealing a New Story of Our Human Origins. And Tom, we've just ended up debating whether or not the Denisovans ended up over in the Philippines, Melanesia, Indonesia. And this is also the part of the world where other distinct species of, of human have been found. Most famously, it's probably the, the hobbits of Flores. Tell us about what they were again. Yes, yeah, so this was um, one of the biggest discoveries in paleoanthropology in the last uh, century and a half, no question. I remember when this, um, when this publication came out, it was almost too impossible to believe that you could have this tiny group of people, never before seen, living on this tiny little island called Flores in the middle of island Southeast Asia. You know, diminutive, very short, dwarfed people who lived in this cave 
on this island of Flores, a very small island to the east of um, Wallace's line, which is the demarcation line between the continental fauna of, um, of Eurasia and Australasia. And the archaeologists who were at the heart of this, a guy called um, Mike Moorwood was the, um, was the principal force behind this uh, research, had excavated um, down to a great depth in this particular site. And at a depth of around nine meters, they discovered these uh, sorted bones of, of a single individual, which was known later as LB1. Um, the bones were preserved very poorly Unfortunately, they were almost like papier-mâché. And so the, the Indonesian team that worked on um, extracting these bones did an absolutely amazing job of preserving them using a mixture of nail polish and uh, acetone. They managed to, to consolidate the remains before removing them and, and taking them out to a local hotel room where they further worked on the bones. And the bones themselves, as I say, are of a, of a very small individual. Subsequently, more bones and more remains were found. And the popular term for these guys is the hobbits, um, Homo floresiensis. Initial work suggested that these bones and these people disappeared perhaps as recently as 18,000 years ago. But we now know that that's unlikely to be the case. More work was done subsequently, and it was suggested that the disappearance of these uh, hobbits took place probably at around 45 to 50,000 years ago, which is getting close to the date which we think um, modern human ancestors moved into this area for the first time and therefore may have been implicated in it, but we don't really know. So this was a major discovery, of course, and subsequently the research there has inspired other teams to dig a little bit deeper in their archaeological sites. So in 2019, another excavation, another team in the Philippines on the island of Luzon were excavating at a site called Callao Cave, and they decided to dig a little bit deeper um, thinking that they bottomed out in the, in the cave that they were excavating. They decided to go back subsequently. They excavated further down. Lo and behold, they started to find small remnant remains of a similarly sized human that was different enough. So they called it a new species and they called it Homo luzonensis. And so on these islands, it looks as though what's happened is that previous groups of humans make it to these islands and then they become cut off or isolated. And often what happens on islands like this is that you get either dwarfism or gigantism taking place. So on Flores, for example, we have giant rats, we have dwarf stegodons or dwarf elephants, we have dwarfed humans. Evolution plays funny tricks and, and does funny things when it's um, in a situation like this. And it's not unreasonable to think um, that there could well be other undiscovered groups of humans whose remains lie um, awaiting discovery and excavation on other islands in island Southeast Asia and gives rise, I think, to this idea that humanity was exceptionally complex in this period before 40,000 years ago. And this does make you wonder, you talk in the book about, you know, the idea that these, the hobbits of Flores mm. could have been, you know, happily living there for 100,000 years before modern humans came along. And so where are all the remains of these things? And again, obviously, this is the tropical climate. This is yeah. a hot climate. But going back to the Denisova cave, yeah, again, there's hardly any there's hardly any remains of the Denisovans. Why is it so difficult in most cases to find these remains? Yeah, so I think there are, there are a couple of reasons. And one is almost certainly that these people were very few on the ground. Um, when we look at, for example, Neanderthals, we've got a lot of human physical remains of Neanderthals, but recent estimates put their numbers at probably less than 15,000 people at any one time right across this vast space of Eurasia. And it, it's been suggested that it could even be remarkably smaller than that. I mean, some of the genetic estimates suggest that perhaps 5,000 people at any one time were Neanderthals. And so you've got very small numbers of people, which of course then has implications for the discovery of their remains further down the line. 
often the remains we have come from caves and this has given um, rise to the interpretation of cavemen that people were living in caves a lot that may or may not be true we also find their physical remains in um, occasionally in open air sites and so they were probably living out on the open too and another point that i think is important when we're looking at the the very fragmented and small numbers of bones that we have is that formal burial was something that we only really see where we see very occasionally we think with Neanderthals, but it was only really after about 30,000 years ago that we find evidence that people were formally burying people in places like caves. And so, for example, the earliest evidence that we have in Eurasia for anatomically modern humans isn't in the form at all of burials and skeletal remains of any great magnitude. They're usually tiny bones or teeth, single single teeth and tiny bones. And I think in many cases, the bones that we've got come via predators. They're deposited in the sites from things like cave lions or predators like hyenas. And this is how we find a lot of these bones, certainly at Denisova Cave. I mean, Denny, the bone I was talking about at the very beginning, the tiny little bone that we discovered using zooms, had evidence that it had come through the digestive tract of a hyena. And it was all polished and a little bit um, shiny. And I think a lot of these bones were crunched up by hyenas and, and other predators that were living in these caves. And that's why we find them. So yeah, it's a, it's a very, very tough question. And um, it's rather frustrating, which is why the sediment DNA work and these zooms approaches that we're using are, I think, the most productive and profitable ways of finding the bones that will give us some of the information that we seek to try and reconstruct what happened in the prehistoric past at this juncture. And so I guess the question is, where did they all go? All of these various different mm. other species of humans. Obviously, now there is only us. Mm. And there's obviously, you know, lots of dramatic theories about how that might have happened. But going right back to what we talked mm. about at the beginning, hybridization may mm. just be the answer. Yeah. So it looks as though our species benefited quite profitably from these interactions that we had with these disappeared groups of humans like Denisovans and like, like Neanderthals. And we know now that we have evidence for their genes and for their DNA in us. And we're just at the beginning of understanding what the functional nature of these genes is and what we benefit from in terms of these interbreeding activities. In some cases, it's deleterious. We know that some of the genes that we inherit, for example, from the Neanderthals aren't immediately beneficial to us. They involve things like um, behaviors um, are linked with Neanderthals, like smoking behavior. It doesn't mean Neanderthals were smokers. It just means that the addictive relationship between activities that we do that are bad for us has been linked with Neanderthals. Um, lupus, um, type 2 diabetes is strongly linked with Neanderthals. But we also have some benefits and some beneficial things. So with Denisovans, it's becoming apparent that a range of quite positive immunological responses come to us via Denisovans. And I think that this might well be due to the fact that Denisovans appear to have been living in quite challenging and tropical environments, um, particularly the ones that we're looking at um, would be areas in New Guinea and an island of Southeast Asia and Melanesia, where we do have a range of quite challenging tropical diseases. And there's a lot of evidence emerging now that modern day people living in those areas have genes that come from Denisovans that give them some sort of added advantages when it comes to resisting tropical um, diseases and illnesses, which is amazing. Another really interesting source of uh, genetic advantage and adaptive advantage that we get from Denisovans um, has been found in Tibetan people. So people living on the Tibetan plateau, have this ability to survive there and have children there despite the very low levels of oxygen that are up there. And normal people, of course, have to acclimatize. It takes them 
weeks to um, to acclimatize even vaguely to the local conditions, whereas Tibetans have this amazing ability to not um, not have too many problems. And it turns out that the reason that they have this ability is from a genetic integration from Denisovans, which gives them a gene called EPAS1, a variant of the gene that allows them to resist hypoxia, the difficulties that one gets when one is um, starved of oxygen. And so it's directly from a Denisovan, from the Denisovan population that Tibetans have this benefit. And it's so beneficial that 98% of Tibetans have this variant of the gene. But not only that, we also find similar variants of genes that allow um, for animals to live at high altitude amongst animals like the Tibetan Mastiff, the dog, which gets that gene from wolves that live on the Tibetan plateau. And similarly, Tibetan cows, which get it from yaks that live on the Tibetan plateau. So all of these animals are involved in taking advantage through hybridization of animals that they interbreed with. And humans are no exception. We did exactly the same thing. When we came out of Africa and we met Neanderthals and Denisovans, we interbred with them. Some of the genes we obtained were advantageous. They were selected for because they were adaptively advantageous. Some of them weren't so, and they've been slowly eliminated and deleted, or we still have vestiges of them today. But hybridization is this fascinating thing that a lot of people are now very interested in to work out what advantages we obtained in our inheritance from this amazing genetic legacy that we have. And just to finish off then, Tom, obviously now being the only species left, there's enough wars and discrimination and racism and what have you to go around to wonder what we might, how we might deal with multiple species knocking around as well. But I do feel like a real sort of terrible romantic sadness that all of these other species are gone. And I wonder what it would have been like. What do you think it would have been like 60 or 70,000 years ago when there was five or six potentially different species of humans rubbing up against each other. I know. I mean, it is really sad, isn't it? I, I think that too. And I also feel sad when I look at all of the animals and, and that, have, that have become extinct uh, in, in the last few million years too. But I think, I mean, I like to, to call it the Middle Earth. Earth was a Middle Earth at these times. You know, there were multiple species of, of humans that existed. We've already mentioned the Homo luzonensis, the hobbits, and we've mentioned... Um, we mentioned another uh, diminutive group that's only recently been discovered, Homo luzonensis as well. So we have all of these different groups and it must have been an incredible place. I mean, our ancestors met these people. They interacted with them. We have evidence that we interacted and overlapped with Neanderthals for more than 10,000 years. We don't know what happened when we met Denisovans. We know that there may have been periods where we interbred with them later in different parts of the world. We don't know if we ever met hobbits or Homo luzonensis. But, you know, the, the pace of discovery, of, and particularly in the genetics world, means that we can start to really answer these questions over the next few years. So it would have been an absolutely fascinating place. And it is very sad that we are the only ones left. But, you know, our diversity today is, is I, I guess, a fraction of what it was tens of thousands of years ago, 40,000 years ago. And now... We are unique in being the only group left, but for most of our geological time, for most of the, of the last uh, few million years, there were many more of us and varieties of us than there are today. So I've been talking to Tom Hyam. We've been talking about his book, The World Before Us, How Science is Revealing a New Story of Our Human Origins, which is out in the UK from Penguin Viking. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks for inviting me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.